Okay, you guys can head upstairs. Have a great morning. There we go. I have invited Marian to read our scripture, Genesis 7, verses 1 to 5, so you can find it there in the Bible. It'll also be on the screen as well, though. Did you bring your own copy? Well, it's, I know. I'm, I do large print because my vision's bad. So I'm still it. young, Jeff. I can manage. Good morning. Um, yeah, the scripture this morning, Genesis 7, verses 1 to 5. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I find you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. The youth worship team were really excited that I was going to be preaching with the pulpit this morning. They were like, are you, going to, are you going to speak behind that? I'm like, should I? They're like, yeah. How times have changed, eh? Remember when like pulpit was like super old school and lame? Now it's like, I'm one of the cool kids. Okay, this is one of the most famous Bible stories. Even if you are completely unchurched, you would have likely come across in our cultural context some reference to Noah's Ark, the flood. Very, very famous story. Obviously, it's a real favorite when it comes to children's Bibles and Sunday school, and, uh, which is really strange, obviously, because as we're going to find out, it's this culmination of judgment and destruction, and I get the whole like boat, water, animals, it makes for a cute picture, right? But at the same time, it kind of is counterintuitive in terms of what you'd want to really impress in the children's heart. Yay, God's going to judge and destroy the world. Woo! Let's sing a song. Wendy and I were joking this week. Do you remember a song you sang about Noah's Ark? I'm not going to make you sing it. Don't worry. But um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a mainstay when it comes to a, a children's ministry. And therefore, it kind of gets embedded in our consciousness, especially if we've grown up in the church. Maybe so much so that when we interact with the story in Scripture, we kind of glaze over it. We miss some details. We kind of allow these Sunday school pictures to fill in the blanks for us. And... Um, I think it's really important to not do that. The more familiar you are with the biblical story, to be aware to just slow yourself down, read slowly, read a few different translations, and sort of maybe be open to saying, God, show me what I've always missed, or, or a new dimension to this story that impacts me directly right now. So if you think about Noah's, the, uh, Noah and the Ark and the flood story in the context of what we've read through in Genesis right now, you're really seeing the effects um, slowly but surely, starting in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve reject and ignore God's commands, and then successive generations do, you're seeing this spiral into deeper and deeper levels of chaos and destruction, right? There's 
relational alienation and murder and exploitation and injustice and violence. Corruption has become the status quo for human society. And Noah finds favor because he is righteous in his generation. And we talked last week, that doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. Righteous in his generations means compared to everyone else around him, Noah's posture was at least fundamentally seeking to know and honor God. So it didn't mean that he was perfect, but he was seeking to live a life that honored God in stark contrast to those around him. So God tells Noah his plan. He's going to bring a judgment on the earth, but the judgment comes from God's grief over what mankind has become. He created us to be image bearers, to reflect his goodness and glory. But all that's being reflected into the world now is uh, darkness and evil and violence. And so God says, I've got to intervene. And the state of things is so seriously wrong that I have to intervene in a way that is... um, monumental and really unforgettable. So in chapter 7 and 8, we get to the famous flood story, and I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you, but I encourage you to read it in detail a number of times. Uh, It's it's quite interesting. So in uh, chapter 7, verses 10 to 24, the flood waters come. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. That's going to become a biblical theme and motif around, um, uh, well, I'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But 40 days and 40 nights becomes this recurring theme around significant events in Scripture. Uh, everything, in the ar- everything that is not in the ark is destroyed. The earth is flooded for 150 days. So it rains 40 days and 40 nights. Flood waters are released. The earth stays in a state of floodedness for 150 days. Chapter 8, 1 to 5, God sends a wind over the earth. The waters begin to recede. Uh, verses 6 to 12, Noah sends out a raven and then a dove, and he's trying to kind of discern if there's any dry land that can allow them to disembark from the ark. Eventually, a dove returns with an olive leaf. Seven days later, it doesn't return at all. So people on the ark realize, okay, the waters are receding, the dry land is disappearing, and then after an entire year, so from start to finish, the flood uh, event takes a year, God invites Noah and those in the ark to come out so that they can be, they can multiply on the earth, they can be fruitful, and they can increase in number. That's an echo back to God's original command to Adam and Eve. So the whole ark story with the flood takes a year, and then when they come off the ark, we read at the tail end of chapter 8, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So for a lot of people, um, if some of the earlier chapters, Genesis 1, God creating in six days, resting on the seventh, God creating Adam and Eve, putting them in a garden. If those haven't been stumbling blocks to embracing Christianity or the validity of the Bible, which they can be for many people, this might be the story that puts people over the edge. Um, Genesis is a complex book, And if you think, oh, I want to kind of find out what the Bible's about, I'm going to start in Genesis 1, start at the start of the book, right? Just start reading. 
uh, it doesn't take people very long without some guidance to, to come to a place where they're like, I don't think I can believe this. And there's usually two broad threads that kind of weave their way through that kind of resistance and doubt. The first is that the stories that they're reading seem some combination of irrational or scientifically impossible. And so there's just a, from, from the reader's point of view, um, many people don't get much past Genesis you know, 6 or maybe 9 or maybe uh, chapter 11 because they're like, this just seems like made-up fairy tales, like the earth flooding with water, like God creating in six days, and uh, I don't know. This just seems in, improbable. I can't take it seriously. The second is probably only shows up beginning with Noah and the flood story, which is God's destructive judgment for some people is very morally offensive. They would say, why would God have to do it that way? Like, why would, God, why would God's plan be to, like, wipe out almost all life? And not just human life who were at fault, but creaturely existence. Even though the animals didn't do anything wrong, but, you know, the whole earth is flooded, everything is destroyed. How, how am I supposed to use this story as a window into seeing God's goodness? Because at first pass, it seems like it's more of a window into God's malice and why I wouldn't trust this God, and why this God isn't worthy of worship. And these challenges that part of what we read in the early chapters of Genesis either seem irrational or scientifically impossible or improbable, and or that when we begin to read these stories about judgment, it feels like a non-starter for us because maybe the reflex in our heart would say, I could never worship a God who operated out of that kind of vengeance and anger. I, I want to believe in a God of love. I, th I thought that's what the Bible teaches. Those challenges need to be taken seriously. And in some church contexts, um, and in some church cultures, the dominant invitation is to sidestep those real um, issues of interpretation, either... Um, in kind of a benevolent way of, well, yeah, it's kind of confusing, but anyway, just, just skip on, just keep moving. Or in a more insidious way, which is kind of like, well, you just have to believe the Bible. So it might be offensive, you might have troubles with it, but that's your problem, that's not the Bible's problem. So you just, just have faith, you should just believe, make a decision of the will, ignore some of these um, doubts and questions that you have, because that's, uh, those seeds of doubt are just gonna carry you farther away from God. So. Bible says it, believe it, done. I would advocate a different stance and posture, whether you're a non-Christian or you consider yourself a believer. I think we should take scripture very seriously. I do believe it is the word of God. And I think we should take our questions seriously. And I believe that when we take our questions seriously with a posture of faith and looking for truth and not to solidify our own pre-existing what we want to be the conclusions, a lot of fruitful things can emerge. Um, there's a phrase that I, sometimes, you know, whether it's Noah and the flood story or sometimes even with Adam and Eve and um, creation and, and kind of its interface with, let's say, evolutionary theory, there are people who kind of at bottom, maybe first out of the gate want to know like, Pastor, is it like okay to doubt? Like I am wrestling with certain things I read in the Bible or how things fit together. Um, is it okay to doubt? And I would say it definitely can be 
Doubt can be a very constructive or a very destructive thing, but it depends a lot on what our aims are and the position of our heart. So one quote that I really like is uh, from Trevin Wax, who said, Biblical doubt is faith seeking understanding, not unbelief seeking confirmation. Can you feel the, the difference there? Biblical doubt is faith. I want to understand God's truth. I trust in God, and it's seeking understanding. I don't understand, I don't see how all the pieces fit together, but I'm trusting that as I follow God, he'll lead me to those answers at the right time. That's good faith. That's healthy faith. That's where the questions can move us deeper into our relationship with God. Unhealthy um, doubt, sorry, unhealthy doubt is when we start on a posture of, I don't want to believe this book. That's my, that's my default position, is a posture of unbelief. And then at the first, first opening chapters, oh, God who created six, this is preposterous, ridiculous, throw it away, right? That's unbelief seeking confirmation. And that kind of doubt is really an active posture of unbelief. And so if we can go into these questions honestly saying, I struggle with this, or I'm not sure how to think about this, I haven't read enough on this, um, but it doesn't sit well with me, but nevertheless, I'm going to trust and obey Jesus and continue to move forward in relationship with him, right? I'm not going to hold God hostage and say, God, you better clear up all my answers right now on this text, or I'm not following you, right? That is not the posture of faith. But neither is it the posture of faith to simply say, these questions don't matter, I shouldn't be thinking about this, um, I'll just kind of pretend it's not there. Now, when it comes to the first tension point in this text, that it seems irrational or scientifically implausible, I'd want to say that part of that comes down to whether or not you see the flood story as an essentially natural event where God allows natural forces to play out, or God, or you see it as a supernatural event, where God supernaturally enhances natural processes. So there's two basic views, and Christians have been wondering what to make of stories like um, creations, uh, seven days of creation, the historical Adam and Eve. They've been wrestling with this since the early church. So you're in good company if you're wrestling with it. And when, when it comes to Noah and the ark, there's kind of two broad views. The first is the contextual view. And this view says that the flood was regional. Uh, so when it talks about the world, it's talking about the world from the reader's point of view. You might notice in Genesis that uh, starting pretty early, the perspective can be read as someone at the ground level of life seeing what God is doing. You're not always getting this abstracted, up in the corner of the room, third-party view. And so when God gives this to Moses, Moses is relaying what God is revealing to him at the point of um, his own perspective and context. And so from the original writer's perspective, we can conclude that the world, as the writer understood it and experienced it, was completely washed away, was completely destroyed. And that can be anything from 500 to 900 square miles. And that could be explained naturally. And all of the theological lessons that I'm gonna talk about in a moment would still adhere and cohere with that view. The second view is the literal view, which is that what we're reading is a bit more of a th uh, that abstracted, this is a global God's perspective, not from 
um, God giving the perspective from a human point of view. This is the literal view that says the flood was global, and it would read texts like Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 and conclude that a global flood occurred despite the fact that it is naturally impossible. Um, it doesn't take long. Both Christians and non-Christians can do the math and to say a global flood where floodwaters cover over the highest mountains of the earth. There's actually, naturally speaking, not, it's not possible for that much water to actually um, both come and go. And, go. Um, and there's a number of other uh, naturalistic challenges to the flood story. So if you want to lean more in that direction, you can say, oh, I can't see how it could be contextual and how all the theological lesson, lessons could still make sense. Um, but someone else might say, well, yeah, but nothing's impossible with God. So this might be an example where God um, supplemented natural processes with a supernatural flood of water and then retracted it in a supernatural way. And again, Christians, I, th I think both views can be um, defended biblically. The interesting thing, though, that I will say, even though I personally uh, tend to lean a little bit in more in a contextual view, you know, there's a, the splinter in my mind is always, why are there so many cultural global flood stories? That's, that's kind of a weird one, right? Even anthropologists will recognize that flood mythologies aren't localized to a particular part of the world. The Aztecs have them, Scandinavians have them, the Greeks had them, the Egyptians have them, the Indians have them, the Nigerians have them, the Chinese have them, the Australians have them, the Hawaiians have them. Stories different in details and different um, causal explanations of what caused it. But all of these cultures in all over the world have very deep um, formative cultural stories that involve a massive flood that destroys everything. So that's always the one that I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. I gotta, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty amazing because you don't see that same pattern play out with some of these deep mythic stories. There's a lot of coherence around a global flood story. Um, if you want more information on those, I can, I can give them to you, but I wanna move on to the second thing, which is I find stories like this where God is just destroying to be evidence of God's malice and vengefulness. There's nothing in the story that to me is redeemable or would propel me into putting my faith in this God. How could a good God judge the world like this? And to that, I would say, um, it's really important for you and I to be attentive to our cultural situatedness. Um, and what I mean by that is, I don't want to downplay any of the hardships that any of us are walking through right now in our lives. I, I, don't, I don't want to talk as if our lives are free from carry or worry or hardship or pain. But I want us to recognize that we are currently living in a cultural context, a society in which we live, um, from the perspective of ease, comfort, security, anybody else who's ever lived in human history would trade places with us like that. And even today, there's many, many billions of people 
who would trade places with you and would love to have your serious problems. They would trade your serious problems in a moment for theirs. And because in our society, in different ways, we are, generally speaking, very bubble-wrapped and protected from a lot of discomfort and cruelty and injustice, when you read stories in the Bible of God bringing justice to bear against a people, it will always seem like an overreaction to us. Destroying our, like, God, chill, like, it's not a big deal. Things, things are pretty good. People aren't perfect, but, like, wow, talk about overreaction. But if you spend any amount of time, even today, in places in the world where that bubble wrap protection does not exist, and you are on an almost daily level presented with abuse, exploitation, rape, violence, greed, wickedness, and all kinds of spiraling creative forms, stories and truths that present God as a righteous God who will bring judgment and, yes, even destruction to bear on the wicked are a deep and important comfort to your heart. You do not want to worship a God who's just like, it's all good, just keep on keeping on. I just love everybody. You don't want a God like that. That is the God that you should be offended by morally. A God who can look in to the darkness of evil and kind of be like, well, it's not that bad. And never, always sit on his hands, not take decisive action, you do not want. That's the kind of God you don't want to trust for your life or for your eternity. And also, just a challenge and reminder that even here in Nelson, those things exist. I mean, we as a society have all kinds of very sophisticated ways to hide the evil that gets expressed in and through um, even this society, right? It's, it's easy. I, I've been here for five years. I get it. It's easy to kind of um, walk into and inhabit this narrative like, oh, people in Nelson are caring and friendly and they have a big heart and all about social justice and it's a live and let live. And there's a lot of very commendable things about the culture here in Nelson that I would absolutely say it's a great place to live. But there is abuse here in Nelson and there's exploitation and there is rape, and there is violence, and there is greed, and there is wickedness. There's a greater sophistication in being able to hide it and shelter it, but it still exists. And you do not want to worship a God who just glances at Nelson and sees the presenting image and says, oh, what a cute little village town. So sweet, moving on. You want a God who can see right to the bottom of the hell on earth that some people in this uh, community experience. And we'll go further to say, that's, I'm not okay with that. And in response to both objections, whether the wrestling is of an intellectual doubt nature or it's of an existential sort of personal emotional, oh, I don't know how I feel about a God who is sometimes this angry. The other thing that I would say is look to Jesus. This is important as a disciple of Jesus. How did Jesus interact with these texts? You know, in Matthew 24, he says, about the day and the hour of my return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, 
not even me, not only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So I might have intellectual doubts, I might have some kind of reservations about how to square this attribute of God that I see in the flood story with who Jesus is, but I also have to reckon with the fact that Jesus was very comfortable quoting from Noah as authoritative for his life and for the life of his followers. And that gives me kind of a bit of comfort because I can kind of say, if Jesus, who's the full revelation of God, could lean into these stories and be like, yeah, like I have no, he had no problem talking about referencing God's work here. He didn't have to apologize for it. Then I can at least kind of be like, okay, then th- there must be a piece that I'm missing. It's not, it's not, you know, if Jesus didn't have a problem with it, and I do, then I need to, look, need to learn from Jesus how he read and understood these scriptures and not dismiss these scriptures when Jesus would quote them and present them as authoritative. Okay. This is part one of part two, because I knew that intro slash extended opening teaching bit was going to take a little bit longer. So I just have three really short theological lessons that we can learn from Noah's Ark. Some of them, because we're going to do more next week. It's a really rich story. And number one, um, don't miss the, the forest for the trees. God's deepest desire is to save and rescue people. If you just pick up the story at the flood... Um, I understand how you can come up with a view that says, oh, God just seems to be freaking out and just killing everybody as a show of strength, as an expression of malice. Who knows? It's like, no. When you actually look at the whole narrative development, starting in Genesis 1, God has been patient with people. And God has let um, human free will and agency play out in ways that are, you know, some might say uh, he's given humanity too long a leash to run on but he's doing it from a posture of patience, wanting to save, right? God doesn't just destroy the earth in a moment of anger and judgment. Based on, if you look at Noah's age, age references throughout the story, his son ages, it's pretty clear that it took many years to build the ark, likely decades. And the point is God gave time for people to see the construction of this ark, symbolic of the coming judgment. Hebrews talks about Noah as a preacher who's sharing in some degree what's happening. God gives time for people to change course, right? Day in and day out as this ark slowly gets constructed, people are asking questions. What's going on? I don't think Noah keeps that to himself. 1 Peter 3 says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And in 2 Peter He writes, the Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness or some perceive as slowness, but God is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And repentance is a Bible word that means changing course. Instead of living away from God, you're now living for and towards God. Instead of not being on God's path, you're now living on God's path. And it's realizing, oh, I've been on the wrong path. And not just saying that, but changing your life to go on God's path. And so the story is about God letting humanity go to the absolute breaking point and then saying, my patience is exhausted. If I let it go farther beyond this, 
I actually betray my own holiness and my own righteousness. You can't, you wouldn't, no one would be able to say God is good if I continue to let this spiral out of control. I've got to intervene. God's deepest desire is to save and rescue people. And although it's not often associated with the Noah story, that's actually one of the major theological points of the story. The second is the flood story gives us a pretty powerful and sobering image of what we should expect if we, in our lives, reject and ignore God. One of the interesting ways to think about the flood story is it is a decreation story. It's an undoing of Genesis chapter 1. Right? We want to try and read these stories in their context, try and see patterns if we can. And one of the patterns that you might pick up on is at 150 days, after 40 days and 40 nights, the world is flooded. This picture that we're supposed to have in our mind's eye is the world is just flooded. You can't see anything but water. In Genesis 1, first opening two chapters, or verses of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in Genesis 1, God takes this chaotic, undifferentiated mass of creation and then begins to differentiate elements. He brings order and structure and purpose out of the chaotic waters. And what's happening in the flood is this. God is saying, you ignore my structure, my purpose for you. You ignore my order. Do it at your peril. What you're going to experience are successive layers and levels and dimensions of decreation, culminating in destruction. With God, when we follow God's path, our world begins to come together. The chaos that we experience relationally, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, financially, all these dimensions, as we learn to follow God's ways, they begin to cohere, structure, order, form, and function. Ah, life feels like it's starting to come together. The pieces are fitting. It's not just a ball of chaos hurtling down my days and weeks and months and years. There's a deeper purpose happening. But when we ignore God, when we reject God, when we dismiss God, when we abandon and turn our backs on God, the opposite process is unleashed. There's a greater and greater hurtling towards chaos and disintegration, pulling apart, lack of coherence. Things begin to feel like they're spiraling out of control and ultimately we hit the wall and there's destruction. And so the flood story becomes really instructive for modern day disciples like you and I because it shows us the lowercase f, the little flood that will be unleashed in your life if you choose to ignore God's ways in a particular area of your life. As we reject and ignore God in totality, let's say, as a non-believer and say, I, just, I don't want to be a part of that, you should expect a greater and greater flood of disintegration happening in your life. As you not just yield to God in the moment of conversion, but continue to yield daily to Jesus, if you stop that process in your life and all of a sudden you begin to harden your heart against God, there's going to be that same movement into chaos. And the flood story also tells us not just about the lowercase flood that we will experience if we reject God in our own lives, in our own walks with him, but also what we will experience in the next life when we have lived and died in a posture of rejection and um, ignoring God. 
right? The flood is used as a kind of symbol for a final judgment that while God's desire is to gift people with eternal life, what awaits those who reject that offer is eternal death and destruction. A full and final judgment is coming against those who reject God's love and his grace and his offer of rescue. And lastly, building on that, the flood story not so subtly shows us that there's actually only one way to be delivered or saved from destruction and into new creation, new life, eternal life. I'm using some of those terms a little bit synonymously. There's only one door through which we can be saved. When the ark's being constructed, God makes it very clear to Noah, I want you to put a door on the side of the ark in Genesis 6.16. Jesus in his ministry, in the context of talking about sheep and and places that sheep are penned in for protection, um, the translation is used, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. But they use gate to connect it specifically to a sheep pen. The Greek word that Jesus uses just means door, thyra. I am the door. And for people hearing Jesus teach that, um, first century Hebrew people were steeped a lot in visual cues, right? They picture a door, and they don't just understand this as Jesus saying, I'm a way that you can be saved. They're thinking door, door, famous doors in scripture, door, door, door of the ark. That was the only way on the ark, through the door. You could come from all over the four corners of the earth like the animals did and get to the base of the ark, but how are you going to get in the ark? Only through one door. And part of what Jesus presents, not just here, but throughout his ministry, you can read about them in the Gospels, the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's consistently presenting himself as if he is the door, not a door, the door. He is the Savior, capital S, the Lord. Peter says the only name under heaven by which we can be saved, that we can be delivered from this coming judgment of those who reject and ignore God. And that's why baptism is such a big deal for Christians. The pattern that we see in the Bible is when someone comes to put their faith in Jesus, they get baptized. Because baptism is like a little single-serving flood. It's like your own personal little flood. Your old way of life is destroyed. You are dying to your conception of life with me at the center. That's now dead. Romans 6 goes a lot into that. And coming up out of the water, you've been delivered in and through Jesus, the true ark, into a new kind of life. Not just saved for heaven, that is part of the promise, but saved for a new kind of life now. The waters of your old life recede, new dry ground appears, and God calls to you and says, be fruitful and multiply. I've created you for a purpose. You weren't, you weren't living for that purpose before. I've brought that way of life and that pattern of life to death. Now I'm gonna, we're going to, you know, in the same way that Adam failed, try again with Noah, God's saying that old life is gone. The life that you lived in Adam, in your own sinful nature, has now been put to death. I'm going to teach you what it means to be fruitful and multiply to my glory and the world's good. 1 Peter 3 says, To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built... He ties us to baptism. He says, eight and all were saved through water. And this water, he says in the ark story, it symbolizes baptism that can now save you. Not by removing dirt from your body, 
but as a pledge of a clear conscience before God in recognition that you have turned your life over to Jesus and he has cleansed you and washed you from all sin and guilt and shame. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when you move through life rejecting or ignoring God, you should expect chaos to be unleashed. And if you continue your life in rejection of God, then you need to expect a final judgment that will condemn you to eternal death. But Jesus has the power to save you from the flood of sin's power and penalty and lead you into eternal life, puts you back on solid ground, the solid ground of Christ, the living rock. His desire is that no one in this room, no one in this community would perish, that all would come to saving faith. But his patience will not endure forever, either for your life individually or for human history. And so if you hear his voice today, if you hear that call, pastorally, what I'd want to say to you is don't harden your hearts. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts against him. Change course. Say, Jesus, I don't understand how all the pieces fit together, but I want to trust you. I want to give my life over to you. I want you to forgive me. I want new life. I'm tired of trying to keep my head above these chaotic waters. I want to learn from you how to live. I want eternal life. Turn to Jesus and let him lead you out of the chaotic waters and into the kind of life that you were meant to live. A life that's centered around giving glory to God and advancing true good to your neighbor. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we just pray that it would not return void. Even as it's been proclaimed this morning, God, by your spirit, through your word, do a work in us as a church. Convict hearts of their need for you. Draw those of us who are wayward in our walk with you back to a more faithful um, walk. God, thank you for the provision that you made in Jesus. Thank you that your heart, that you are not quick to condemn You are mighty and quick to save, God. May that clarion call of salvation be heard and received today. In Jesus' name, amen.